You probably know where we're going in the Bible. We're returning back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18. And as we are turning there, uh, it's great to see uh, so many of you back. I know this is a time of year where we often go on vacation. Uh, We often will take road trips. Maybe we'll go see family, uh, friends that maybe have moved away, or maybe just to see places we have never seen before. Sometimes we go on those trips, and as exhilarating as they be, may be to see old friends or family or new places, often fatigue can set in. Uh, one of the men in our church this year, in the summer, took his Harley out west, and on Facebook he would offer frequent updates of videos or pictures or just uh, typing out how his trip has gone. Now it was wonderful to follow along with him on, on Facebook where he had gone. But as that trip prolonged, you could also see fatigue setting in on his face. And I remember watching one video, he said, I'm, I'm absolutely beat here. Well, with this in mind, we can think of Paul, our friend, the Apostle Paul, going on his own little gospel road trip. He has been on what we call the second missionary journey. If you grabbed an outline in your bulletin, and you have a magnifying glass, you can look at the map that's on the back of it, and you can see his route. We started in Antioch on the far eastern part of your map, and he weaved his way northwest. You see a a red line through Galatia and through Asia. And and then Lystra there, he he had rocks thrown at him, and, and it was believed to be left for dead. If you advance a little further up in the northwest, you see Philippi. And this is where Roman preached a few weeks ago where uh, Paul and Silas were beaten for their faith and then thrown in jail. Last week we covered in Acts 17 where they had gone to Thessalonica and there they were chased out of the city. They go to Berea and they're chased out of the city again. And then Paul goes to Athens and, and preaches this magnificent sermon and what we might call a university town. And as he preached it, the scripture said, some mocked as a result of that sermon. And now as we look at Acts chapter 18, verse 1, we pick up where we left off last week. And after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And so we're going to see another city a massive city, over 200,000 people that live there in Corinth at this time. And I want to suggest to you that there is an accumulative effect here of his travels. He's been on this road trip and he's not only experienced the physical exhaustion, but also the resistance of his message and emotional and spiritual opposition I want to suggest to you that this had an accumulative effect on him. And now he goes into this massive city called Corinth. And if you look at the map, you'll see it had a very strategic location. There is a sea on the right and a sea on the left, or the sea on the west and a sea on the east. And if one were to take a voyage boat and travel around that large peninsula, it would be about 200 miles. 
Or that little strip of land that Corinth occupies is only about four miles. In fact, one strategy of travel would actually be to take a boat and put it on a roller and roll that boat across that four-mile stretch of land. And one might say, well, why would you do that? Why not just dig a canal? Well, the problem with that is that canal, that, that strip of land, was rock. Nonetheless, a Caesar named Nero, in the year 67, launched this canal project. And it was completed in 1893. This is a major endeavor. Because of its strategic location, there was a transient population that came in and out of Corinth. There were sailors, there were businessmen, and it was a government center city, so there were a lot of politicians that would come in and out as well. And with that, a reputation for this city's morality was established. In fact, one might say this, he acts like a Corinthian, and what they meant was that man acts with a loose lifestyle, he is immoral. And if they said that of a woman, she acts like a Corinthian, they might very well mean she's acting like a prostitute. And so this, on the heels of a long, weary journey, is where we follow Paul here in Acts 18, beginning here in verse 1. Now he's about ready to do it again and to begin to preach the gospel. And if you're not convinced that he was weary, listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, when he would later write about walking into Corinth. He said this, When I came to you, and did I come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. He came in his weakness. He came as a weary traveler. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, Good men are promised tribulation in this world, and ministers may expect a larger share than others, that they may learn sympathy and with the Lord's suffering people, and so may be fitting shepherds of an ailing flock. Now, they didn't offer that quote to me on my first day of seminary, but they very well could have. Because... A Christian is going to experience some suffering, but a leader of Christians may actually experience more suffering so that he can sympathize with that. So let us consider the second part of our passage, and that's what I'm calling faithful friends. Look with me here at verse 2. It says, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So you have this cute little couple, one whose name is Aquila, that's the man, and Priscilla, that is the woman. And they leave Rome. They have been asked to leave Rome by the leader whose name is Claudius. Now, what made him drove them away from Rome? Historians may have provided an answer for us. There was a historian whose name is Siotinus who wrote of this time that because of a man named Crustios, 
these people had been expelled from Rome. And if you were just to look at the spelling of Crestios, you'll see if you would just replace the E with an I, it would spell Christius. Now, was there a church in Rome at this time? The answer is yes. If you were to look at Acts chapter 2 at the Pentecost, you would learn at the birth of the church, there were citizens in Jerusalem that were from Rome. It is believed that the gospel was preached there and some citizens returned to Rome with the Holy Spirit and this gospel message and started a church. It is very possible that this historian actually meant Christ was the cause of people being asked to leave Rome and not a man named Crestus. That as the gospel was being spread throughout Rome, as we see in the book of Acts, there was opposition and there was persecution that had flared up and they were being asked to leave. And so now you have this cute little couple. I don't know if they're cute or not. I don't know if they're little. But their name is Aquila and Priscilla. And they leave Rome and they end up in Corinth. Let's look here at verse 3. We'll see a little bit more details about them. It says he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. In God's providence, this weary traveler is on his way through Corinth. And I picture it in my mind as he sees a shop that is given over to tent making. And perhaps there's even a help wanted ad out, out that shop. And maybe there's the Gettys or there's Matt Boswell playing some gospel-centered music. And, and here he comes in, he can't help but think, here's tent makers and here's people that are of Jesus. And as they exchange stories, they realize that they are actually of the faith. And now they have this bond. If you'll permit me for a moment here, I think this couple that we see here in Aquila and Priscilla is a magnificent couple that it would be wise for us to know about. We need couples like this within our church that are devoted to the gospel. We will see here that they will befriend Paul and will serve as an encouragement to him through his ministry. Let me give you a few other instances where we see Aquila and Priscilla. At the end of Acts chapter 18, there is a young upstart whose name is Apollos. The scripture says he is eloquent. I suspect he has a charisma about him as he is proclaiming the gospel. But as we look here at Acts 18, verse 26, it says of him, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This was a couple that was sound in doctrine. And when they saw this young man that was beginning in ministry, they decided to pull him aside as not to embarrass or shame him and try to straighten out his teaching a little bit more. You'll notice here that the order Aquila and Priscilla will sometimes change. We ought to see that as significant in the scriptures. Aquila is the man. Priscilla is the woman, but sometimes Priscilla is actually mentioned first. This could be that her name comes from Prisca, which was a noble, a royal family there in Rome. Or it could also be that of the two, she was more mature in the faith than her husband Aquila. 
I mean, is that possible that 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 could happen? It certainly is. We'll see this couple in another time. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19, we see this dynamic couple. Paul says of them that they are using their house, they're using their home to host a church. This is a couple that says, our house is God's house, and, 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 and... Paul, if you can use it for your purposes to be able to have the gospel and to disciple people, let us use God's house for that reason. We'll also see in Romans 16, verse 35, where Paul says of Priscilla and Aquila, he'll say, they are my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life. Paul had a great respect for this couple within the church. And let me give you just one more. And I think there's a little typo in your handout. It should say 2 Timothy 4.19, not 2 Corinthians 4.19. Because in the waning moments of Paul's life, his death is imminent. And he is reflecting on people that have made an impact in his ministry. He says in 2 Timothy 4.19, greet Priscilla and Aquila. Couples, particularly you are younger couples, It would be my desire to raise the bar for you and not just kind of float through church life. But look at this couple here, Aquila and Priscilla, that were committed to the gospel and had a dramatic impact on the first century church. May that be a role model for you. And I'd urge you, don't take it lightly to think of the the modeling that you can do for young couples. I I can think of a family that years ago that attended Highland Crest. When I first came in 98, uh, there was a couple named Roy and Helen Whittingham. If you remember the pulpit that we used to have here, if I remember right, Roy built that. By the way, that a new pulpit has been purchased, and in coming weeks, Lord willing, it will be here. But if I remember Roy and and his, his sidekick there, Carl, they were the people that kind of led to the basement being finished. Roy and Helen, when I came here, were in their 70s, maybe even 80s. And they were a couple that were in love with each other. One day, they invited Melody and I over for supper. And we were not married yet. We were dating or maybe even engaged. And I can remember going to their house, not remembering what we ate, not even remembering what we talked about, but just being captivated by how this experienced couple loved one another, encouraged one another, joked with one another. They actually enjoyed marriage. And for a person that had grown up in broken families, that had known nothing but firsthand experience of divorce in his immediate family or extended family, this was revolutionary to me. This was more valuable than reading a book or even going to some sort of a conference. And as Melanie and I loaded up in my little pickup truck following supper and we began to drive, uh, drive her home, I remember talking to her and saying, you know what? Let's try to be like that. Let's have to have fun with our marriage. Let's enjoy being married. Evidently, it is possible. And I'm telling you, that that might make you laugh, but that's exactly where I was because I haven't really seen that before. And just a simple meal with an experienced couple left an amazing deposit in my life. So I would encourage you, 
don't, don't settle for just coming into a church and like a bee just sucking out the nutrients of a flower and going on to the next one. But be like an Aquila and Priscilla and plant your lives for the sake of the gospel. Study what their role model was like and by God's grace, live that out. There was not only the faithful friends of Aquila and Priscilla, but there was also another group of faithful friends, and that was Silas and Timothy. Let me bring you back to verse 4, and then we'll go to verse 5. And he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And we've seen that pattern throughout the book of Acts, where he goes into a synagogue, a house of worship. He preaches the gospel. There are Jews, and there are these God-fearing Greeks. And verse 5 says, And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia... Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So Silas and Timothy return. He not only has these new friends in Aquila and Priscilla, but he has his old buddies. You might remember Timothy and Silas. We left them off in the last chapter. As Paul went up to Thessalonica, got chased out of there. Then he went to Berea and he got chased out of there. He instructed Timothy and Silas to remain there and continue to minister. And they did. And they would have brought a favorable report of the progress of the gospel in the church of Thessalonica. How do I know that? Because that's what we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Paul would write back to that church in Thessalonica that we covered last week. And he says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported to you, always remember us kindly and long to see us, we as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted by you through your faith. Hey, it's been a hard time. Hard ministry, I'm weary, but we have been encouraged by the faith that we have seen in you. They would have not only brought a favorable report of the church in Thessalonica, but they also would have brought an offering. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9 says, And when I was with you, I was in need. I, I, need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. Silas and Timothy brought an offering as if to say to Paul, Paul, you don't need to do that tent-making work anymore. Here's an offering. You can devote yourself to prayer, to studying the scriptures, to preaching the gospel, and to discipling people. One would think all of that would have brought an encouragement to Paul. Now let us consider there is more opposition. Number three, more opposition. Look with me here at verse 8. I think I ought to read verse 6 first. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now on, I will go to the Gentiles. We've seen this pattern. He preaches, and some receive, but others oppose. The word oppose here is a military term that means that they're, all, they're like soldiers that are forming an opposition against him and his message. And so Paul says, I've got two word pictures for you. The first is one of shaking out one's garments. Uh, This June, um, Melody and I and the boys, we went and visited some friends there in in Ocracoke, uh, 
uh, Island. I'm looking at Miss Jenny because she was there just recently herself. And before we left, my wife took a glass jar and she scooped up some sand from that magnificent breach on the outer banks of North Carolina. And she, she wanted to always remember our vacation there. So if you were to go into our kitchen, you would see that glass of that sand up on our refrigerator. And while you might preserve something like that, the opposite of that can be true as well. You might say, that memory was so foul, so painful to me, I don't want to have even a trace of it. So you would get rid of everything from a particular experience. It's as if to say, I do not want even a a grain of sand on me. Let me get rid of that. And that is what Paul is doing as he has preached in the synagogues. I have preached to you boldly that you need to be saved from your sins. And, And you have insisted on circumcision and obeying the law of Moses. I want you to know that I'm leaving here and I'm, and I'm, I'm shaking my garments off of this legalism that you, that you believe in here in the synagogue. There's a second word picture he provides here and it has to speak of blood on hands. And in Ezekiel chapter 33, we see this picture of a watchman that has been instructed. And the watchman is to look over the wall and see if there's enemies that will be invading. And if there is enemies that are about ready to attack, the watchman is to help warn the, the citizens of that city. It's to say, danger is coming. Take up arms. Get ready. And if they ignore the watchman and they die, well, the blood is on the citizens' hands. And if the watchman looks out and sees a threat coming against the city and says nothing about it and the citizens are attacked, then the blood is on the watchman's hands. And what Paul is saying here in Acts 18 is, listen, I have warned you of the wrath of God to come, that he is a just God and he will judge you of your sins. I have proclaimed that you need to trust Christ and Christ alone to save you from your sins. And you have rejected this. And you will answer to God and the blood will be on your hands. I have proclaimed it. The blood will not be on my hands. So then we look here at the next verse. It says in verse 7, And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So the, the synagogue has rejected the gospel, but there was a man that lives next to the synagogue that evidently is now a follower of Jesus. So he still has access to this location. Verse 8 says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So there is this man named Crispus. And if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you'll see that Paul actually baptized two different people. In verse 14, one of them was a man by the name of Crispus. So Despite the opposition, as we often see here, verse 8, there are some who believed and some who are actually being baptized. So then let us look at the next passage here of Scripture. This is what I'm calling the refreshment. In verse 9, as we have seen this weary traveler come, he's had some faithful friends, he's preached, there has been some response and some opposition. Look what it says here in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. 
Do you think our Lord Jesus would waste any words? His first words were, do not be afraid. Why would he have said that unless Paul himself was afraid? Here is another vision that he experiences. There are six visions that Paul gets throughout the book of Acts. And this is the third. The first is in Acts 9 where he becomes a Christian. The next one is in Acts 16 where he receives this Macedonian call. And now we see the third one here. And here it is. Do not be afraid. And and contained in that is the next part. Go on preaching. Keep preaching. Go on speaking. As you go out, I realize there's been opposition. I realize rocks have been thrown at you and, and you've been beaten. But don't be silent. Continue to preach. And then the third or the second, rather, thing that we see under this refreshment is it says, I am with you. For I am with you. That's what it says here in verse 10. And there is a theme that we see throughout the scriptures. That whenever there was a man or a woman that was about ready to embark on something that would be challenging, that might cause them fear. We see this pattern of God coming to them and saying, Fear not. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. And you might be weary today. And I think what the, what the Lord would offer to you is his presence. Let me read to you some of these verses. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, he said to Abraham, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. To Isaac in Genesis 26, 24, he says, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you, and I will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. To Jacob, he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Uh, On Wednesday evening, um, our family had went out did some ministry together. And then we came back here to church and we were tidying some things up. And as I walked by the main foyer, I kind of looked down in the basement and I saw a light on. And I said to one of the boys, hey, will you go down and make sure that those lights are off? And the boy said to me, you mean by myself? And I said, well, why don't you take another boy with you? And so if there's a basement monster down there, the two of you can, can fight against it. But isn't that true? I mean... We, we can go through life, we can be very weary, but if we know that God is with us, that provides the refreshment that we need. Listen to what Isaiah 41 verse 10 said, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous hand. So this word comes to Paul and says, don't be afraid. Don't, don't be weary. I am with you. And maybe that's the word that you need this morning. The third thing we see in this is you will not be harmed. You see it there in verse 10. For I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. Now, God's not going to be able to say this to Paul about every city he goes to, but he can say that about Corinth. And Corinth, he's going to provide a hand of protection over him. And then we'll see the last part. It says here, For I have many in this city who are my people. What he is saying here 
is there are many within Corinth who are not yet followers of Jesus, but will be. This is an election verse. This is a foreknowledge verse where Jesus is saying to Paul, there are many in this city, in Corinth, that will become followers of me. They just need someone to preach the gospel to them. And I need you to stay here. And if that is true of Corinth, would it not be true of Green Bay and Brown County and the surrounding counties that there are many here that are followers of Jesus, or they will be? They just need someone to share the gospel with them. And so within this passage, we see not only God's sovereignty, but we also see man's responsibility. And how can these two be on the same page? Charles Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths to each other. He said, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. Friends? Yes, friends. This is the point that we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends. And they work together. So we have the responsibility of believing in Jesus, of repenting of our sins, and proclaiming that message. God does the saving. So there you have the refreshment And now let us work through the remainder of our passage where we see that there is another threat. Another threat. Look with me here at Acts 18, picking it up here in verse 12. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, or Asia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So here you have the Roman governor of this district. And the Jews, as they had done in Thessalonica and Berea, had stirred things up. And now they're trying to get Paul to be chased out of Corinth. And so let's read next. Verse 13 says, They were saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now Paul is present. And just as he's about ready to offer his own defense, he's not even able to. Look with me at verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth... The governor, Galileo, said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. In other words, you're bringing to me this stuff that I don't even see as a crime. There's no act of violence here. You are all arguing over words. I'm not going to deal with this. Get this matter out of my court. And in God's providence, he uses a pagan Roman governor to advance the gospel. And then we see here in verse 16, And he drove them from the tribunal, in 17, And they all seized a man named Sesthenius, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But the governor, Galileo, paid no attention to any of this. This angry mob says, if you're not going to do anything with Paul, we're going to beat someone. And so they beat the leader of the synagogue. Now, one of those leaders had already been converted. We saw that earlier in the chapter. Another one of them is a neighbor to the synagogue, was also converted. Well, what about this guy? What about this Sosthenius guy? Well, if you keep your finger here, and you'll see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, it says... Paul, 
called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother, Sosthenes. So God is saving a lot of the important people there in that area. It could be that he was already a Christian and that's why he was being beaten. It could be that he wasn't a Christian. They were just looking to express their frustration and they beat him and the Christians came alongside and nursed his wounds. And their love for him led them to Jesus, led them to the gospel. So there you have another threat. Now let's conclude here by looking at a return trip. Look with me at verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. You see this dynamic couple. They're going to be accompanying Paul in his ministry. At Centria, he had cut his hair for he was under an oath. Now what kind of an oath would Paul have been under? We read of something called a Nazarite oath in the scriptures. It is one in which a person would allow their hair to grow long and abstain from alcoholic beverage. It could be done in order to offer gratitude back to God. It could be he's grateful for for the protection and experience that he had there in Corinth, and now he is about ready to advance on. It says there in verse 19, And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, But he himself went into the synagogues and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But I'm taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So he had a brief stop in Ephesus. Lord willing, next week we'll cover his stay in Ephesus. Verse 22, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went then went down to Antioch. So the home church that had sent him out on the second missionary journey now greets him on his return. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phygeria and strengthening all the disciples. Let's just end now by offering a few reflections. We've covered these 23 verses that covered Paul's stay there in Corinth As a result of this refreshment that he received, he will spend an extra year and a half there in Corinth preaching and teaching the word. He will experience the protection of God and a a church is established that results in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians being sent there. Let me give you three quick reflections as we wind our message down. One, we all get weary If the Apostle Paul, who had a fortitude of steel, could get weary, you and I can get weary as well. I appreciate a simple little quote that Warren Wearsby offered in his commentary that I read this week that said, Faith is simply obeying God's will in spite of feelings, circumstances, or consequences. This is an unusual time that we are living in, church family. And and I think it would be natural for us to kind of get weary of all this stuff. And, And we're in good company for that weariness. Secondly, refreshment comes by God's reassuring presence and His strengthening Word. I think that's what we see here in Acts 18. I don't have for you this morning seven ways to experience refreshment 
uh, from weariness. Uh, Number one, take a trip to Cancun. Number two, have pina coladas. Number three, uh, get get a hammock for your backyard. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff, but I think true refreshment comes by just having a fresh awareness of God's presence in your life. To being forgiven of your sins. To drawing close and, and just being aware that He is near and that He is active and working in your life. And to realize that God's Word is what strengthens us. To be able to read the Scriptures, maybe in special seasons of Scriptures, and allow them to direct us with clarity. This is what we see in the, the Bible for refreshment. And then thirdly, if you are weary, do not retreat, but advance. It's our tendency to say, I'm, I'm worn out, I'm weary. What I need to do is sit it out. And there certainly are times where it might be appropriate for you to just to retreat for a little bit. But may that not be your ultimate posture. Listen to this great quote that Lord Ogilvy offered. I believe it's very insightful. He said, I have learned this repeatedly in my own life. When my strength is depleted, when my rhetoric is unpolished by human talent, when I am weary, the Lord has a much better tool of emphatic and sensitive communication. The barriers are down. When I know I can do nothing by myself, my poverty becomes a channel of his power. More than that, often when I feel I have been least efficient, people have been helped most effectively. It has taken me a long time to learn that the lower my resistance are and the less self-conscious I have, the more the Word of God comes through. When there's no rhetoric when there's no self bleeding through, and I'm so weary that only God can sustain me through His strength, that is when I am most effective. So if you find yourself like that today, and you are waiting for this refreshment, I would say you are still useful. Lean into that weakness. Depend entirely on God to lead you, to lead your family, to lead whatever ministry God has called you to do. You know, the ultimate rest that we have is responding to an invitation that Jesus offered to some weary people. In Matthew 11, some of my favorite verses here, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is a striving that we often do when we're we're investigating the claims of Christ. I just, I want to become a follower of yours and let me work towards that. And Jesus said, no, just rest in what I have done for you. I've died on the cross for you. Just rest in that. Trust entirely in that. And as believers, We need to continue to rest in Him. Rest in what He has done. And that's where we find our refreshment in His presence. If you have never trusted Jesus, if you don't know if you are a follower of Jesus, I would urge you just to call out to Him, save me from my sins. 
I repent of my ways. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. This morning, we're going to offer an old-fashioned hymn of invitation. Uh, Scott is going to lead us, as well as Vanna, and we're going to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. And if you've yet to trust Christ but would like to, I invite you to, to come and you could join me right here and say, I want to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe you'd say, I just acknowledge, I, I'm weary right now. And God, I could use your refreshment. And you would, you would humble yourself and you could pray here at the altar. Once you make the best use you can of our invitation time. Father, I pray for you to use this time today. Confront us of our sin. If we are not on the right path, humble us. May we experience the refreshment that only you can provide. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.